one of the inevitabilities of being a parent is that you'll not be there when your child wants you to be. Sometimes this is a small thing, and sometimes you're laying out a nice big psychological scar for your child to carry with them for the rest of their lives. I can remember one time when I was very small, probably about five years old, and I was waiting for my mum to come pick me up from Boys Brigade. I was the only one left. Some time passed, and the leaders tried to call her. This was long enough ago that mobile phones were entirely in common use, so they had to use one of those phones that was physically attached to the building, and they couldn't get through to her. At that, you know, that point in history, that wasn't too worrying because they were calling a landline. So it just meant she wasn't at home. And hopefully that meant she was coming to get me. I can't remember exactly why she was late. I do have younger siblings, and as I've learned as a parent, one of their special powers in children is to make you late at just the moment you need to leave the house. So that could have been the sort of thing that was going on. She did eventually come and collect me. Quite a few years later... I remember one lad at a church youth group I was leading, who used to frequently be the last child collected. However, he didn't face the situation with anxiety or worry. He generally just moaned about his dad being always late. Soon his dad would then show up and collect him, at some point after everyone else had left and when the leaders were desperate to get home. (laughs) This particular child didn't really worry anymore about being left, because he knew his dad was coming. It always come from in the past, why would he not come from today as well? Now, neither myself, all those years ago, not quite so many years ago, I like to think, but <laughs> or this child some years, definitely less long ago, were really forsaken by their parents. There might have been that brief moment where the child might have thought that it had happened, but it hadn't. The parent was just running late. That's not to say that doesn't really happen to some children, it does. But for the most part, childhood fear of abandonment by a parent remains just that, a fear. The fear I see in my five-month-old's eyes when he wakes up unexpectedly and just bursts into tears. You know, if he can't see his mum or his dad, then as far as he's concerned, they're not there and they've left him. In Psalm 71, we see the psalmist grappling with some of the difficulties and troubles of life, asking God not to forsake them, and being accused by others of having been forsaken by God. We see the psalmist responding as one who is mature in their faith, is not relying on their own strength, but who remembers that God hasn't forsaken them in the past and isn't about to now either. This is the response of mature faith to troubles. And if you've got the psalm open in front of you, it would be helpful. It's much easier to follow the way through if you can see it as well. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. The writer says they take refuge in God right off the bat. Then immediately, in the following verses, they ask that God will deliver them, rescue them, save them, and be to them a rock of refuge. Right here in these first three verses, we learn something important about the writer's faith in God. The writer both declares that they have God as a refuge, and then they also ask God to be a refuge. The psalmist here is implicitly admitting that their own, their own lack of strength, and that they're relying on God. If the writer was standing in their own strength, their own works, 
then why ask for what they already have if they've got the power to get it for themselves? God is not this man's refuge or rock because of his strengths or works. Rather, God has made himself his refuge and his rock. Right here in the beginning, we see the confidence of the psalmist. In verse 3, it says, You have given a command to save me. If God has made himself a refuge to the psalmist in his own sovereign will, that means there's every reason to trust that God will remain a refuge, no matter how much trouble piles up at the psalmist's door, or how strong he feels. As we go on, we'll see how the writer will use evidence of God's blessing in the past and their present faith and actions to give them confidence of God's continued blessing into the future. We'll see together how this gives them reason to be confident and be sure of God, and that's something any Christian can do, no matter how old or young they are, physically or spiritually. Psalm 71 talks about two troubles, those from man, and it also talks about more general troubles of life. The first is introduced in verse 4. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. These, these men, these wicked, the accusers, um, we referred to in various ways throughout the psalm. This is the trouble that comes from men. These people, they're described as being unjust and cruel. Now, who are the wicked? Specifically, we don't know. As we don't know who the author of Psalm 71 is. So this may or may not be talking about a particular group of people making a particular threat to this person. Or it could be talking about unbelievers in general. The attitude of the world towards God's people. The wicked here, and this is true generally throughout the psalm, are those who are not following God. They are unjust because they don't recognise his righteousness. They don't seek to follow the law. They follow the devil, the ruler of this world. They're in contrast to the psalmist who will go on to explain how he has trusted God, tells of the great things of God has, that God has done, and that he's been doing so since his youth. So this isn't just a human contest here in Psalm 71. This is part of a supernatural battle between God and his people and the devil and his come back and touch on this point later on in the psalm. Are you a Christian? If so, when did you become one? The stories people tell of how they became Christians <coughs> they start with the moments of conversion. No, they don't. Not normally anyway. That's normally reserved for the climax of the story. Once you've become a Christian, you can look back and you can see how God was working, using events in your life, sometimes really dark ones, that God took and used to bring you to him. Maybe it was people around you, the witness of Christian friends or family. Whatever it was, it started before you were a Christian. Probably involves things that were quite out of your control. What if your Christian story doesn't contain a particular moment when you knew you became a Christian? You know how those ones go. Normally people were brought up in a Christian home. They came to know Christ at a young age. Well, if that's you, you still have plenty of reasons for confidence. 
It's not an accident that you became saved. In fact, it shows that God was at work in your life before you even realised that what was going on at all. In all cases, no Christian's walk with God begins with themselves. They always start with some external factor, the various ways which God draws people to himself. In verse 5, we see the psalmist starting to explain the same thing in his life. The psalmist's trust in God does not start on their own terms. It's actually rooted before his birth in verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. If the psalmist was so young, who is responsible for his trust in God? It can't have been through his own effort or his own works. It's quite hard to do anything if you're in the womb. <laughs> this is a point that's worthy of Reformation Day. If the psalmist wasn't able to put his trust in God, then surely this is salvation by grace alone here. This is an early anchor of trusting God that God was present working before the psalmist could even be aware of it happening. It is a great cause for confidence to this man, for both the present and the future, that his trust in God goes right back to the very beginning. In verse 7, we learn more about this man's faith in God. This will be a bit later on in his life. It starts with its roots, predates the man's very existence before his birth, and we see here he says that God has used him as a portent to many. I think in the NIV, the word sign is used rather than portent. It's probably a better word to use here because it's, it's probably referring to, you know, this one is a sign or a wonder to the people at the time, as the people of God. It's um, the same word that's used to talk about the signs that were given by God through Moses um, before the Exodus kicked off. So he's clearly a witness to God's saving power to others. And perhaps that's why we see the opposition that the psalmist will go on to write about. He's someone who's very public with his faith. It's quite difficult to become a target for people if you never actually do anything. He cries out, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. few verses above this statement, we have the psalmist talking about how he's been there, how God has been there since before his birth, taken him from his mother's womb. And here he's looking to old age, or he possibly is in old age, could be either. And he's asking God he would not forsake him when his strength is spent. Now most people will go through a period of infirmity at the very end of their lives. It's a time when people's physical strength really does fail, often to a point where things like getting out of bed unaided, dressing themselves, cooking for themselves, getting themselves about, just becomes impossible without help. This very elderly period of life parallels the very beginning of life and extreme youth. For someone who's very infirm, can't dress themselves, neither can my baby son. They're equally helpless, they have no strength. This parallel between age on the one hand, and youth, is an important one. It illustrates that in the very beginning, it's not God who saved us, and that doesn't change. 
That's where confidence for the future assurance is coming from. If God was present when I had no strength at all, then I can be confident he'll be present no matter how strong I feel or how weak. I can be sure that no matter how great the strength of those who oppose me in this life is, my confidence is God. He's greater than anyone in the world. And this is the first point I'm going to draw out of this passage. There we go. Understanding God's role in our salvation and our complete lack of strength at that time is critical to our confidence for the future. Our assurance of salvation, of knowing that we will finish the race because God begun the work in us. I hope you can all read that. You never quite know when you're choosing a size on your screen. It always looks really big, but then you're sat so close. <laughs> the writer here had God as his refuge way back when he was a baby. Has it now and talks about how God is a strong refuge today. And he's praying that that would remain so all the way through his life. And he needs it to be there all the way through his life. Why? Because his enemies say concerning him, they consult and they bring a charge. God has forsaken him and there, are, there is none to deliver him. It's an interesting charge for the wicked to bring. Nowhere in the psalm, if you notice, does the psalmist say that they are forsaken. The congregation, or the people of God, they don't come and say, you're forsaken. And God certainly doesn't say that the psalmist is forsaken. It's those who are not following God's law, they're the ones who are saying that he's been forsaken. Why? What is it they're seeing that leaves them to conclude God was forsaking him. What does that even mean? People sometimes call a place God forsaken, don't they? I won't mention any places as an example, because that just will offend somebody. I can think of a few. They'll <laughs> <laughs> no, not go there. It often means a lawless place or a dangerous place. Certainly not a place you want to go. Being forsaken by God is definitely a bad thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 20, the Lord says he will forsake the people if they do not follow his commandments because of their evil deeds. It's quite a big chapter, and it sort of starts saying that if you follow God, God will bless you, and then it changes to, and if you don't, I'll set your enemies on you. This command is given to the nation Israel, and indeed we see as you, as you follow through the Old Testament that when Israel goes after God and follows him and are careful to do his commandments, that God blesses them. The opposite is true when they don't do those things. When they turn away from God, he allows their enemies to come along and overtake them. This Old Testament promise may have been in action when this psalm was written. <coughs> so this psalm was possibly written around the time as Isaiah was living and writing in the late 8th century BC. And we know this because right at the end, it refers to God as, O Holy One of Israel. And that's an unusual phrase to find outside the book of Isaiah. It's certainly not something, I don't know, you certainly won't find it in the Pentateuch, you won't find it in any of the writings about David. Now at the time of Isaiah, so possibly around the time this psalm was composed, this very thing was going on. King Hosea of Israel 
when faced with the Assyrians coming down from the north, put his faith in Egypt. Didn't go very well. He was the last king of Israel. Israel fell, and its people were deported. King Hezekiah in Judah, however, would, well, he had a bit of a wobble, but he did eventually listen to Isaiah, put his trust in God to protect him from the Assyrians, and the Lord delivered Judah. So the Lord forsaking Israel may be recent world events here, and this has been written. Maybe this is what the wicked have seen in the psalmist, that the psalmist has trouble in their life. And this has been taken as evidence that God is not with this person. It's important to point out, though, that the promise made by God in Deuteronomy was made to the nation of Israel and not to individual Israelites. Kings in the ancient world were a living embodiment of the nation. The modern idea of a nation isn't a concept that really existed at the time. So if the king followed God, so did the nation. If the king forsook God, God would forsake the nation. So just because bad things happened because Hosea didn't follow God, or that good things did because Hezekiah followed God, that doesn't mean that we should apply this idea to individuals who are not ancient kings of Israel or Judah. Yet many people do exactly this. Even if they don't do it outwardly, many Christians can be guilty of this as well. It's an idea central to health and wealth teaching, isn't it? That God will reward you with material blessing if you follow him really, really well, and that he'll make bad things happen if you don't. This could be the idea that the wicked are getting at. Of course, if they are, then they're wrong. Trouble and calamity in life, and the life of the psalmist, does not mean he is not following God, and that God in turn has forsaken him. To be forsaken by God personally is to be cast into hell. There, there is eternal separation from God. If this is the idea the wicked are getting at, they've got the right end of the stick. But, as those who don't follow God, they're really not qualified to lay this charge at the door of the psalmist. They're the ones who are acting unjustly, who are not following God. Ultimately, it's them who risk being forsaken by God, not the psalmist, who it's very clear from the text, is following God. As believers, we have an even greater reason not to fear this charge that we have been forsaken than the psalmist did writing before Christ. On the cross, one of the sayings of Jesus is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the punishment for your sin has been taken by Christ, the separation from God of being forsaken, if that's what Christ has done for you, then what's left to fear? Jesus has been forsaken in your place, and your circumstances today can't change that fact. This, together with the first point, forms the basis for confidence in the midst of the troubles of life. We have confidence because of God's saving work in the past and because we know that our present trials don't mean that God has abandoned us. So what does the psalmist do? See in verse 12 his response. O oh God, be not far from me. 
Oh my God, make haste to help me. Cries out to God, doesn't he? And this is quite right, but the first response is to call on the Lord. In contrast to being forsaken, which is what the wicked are saying he has been, he says, don't be far from me. I don't think he's saying that God is far away. He's showing his urgency for God's help. The first call is not to his own strength. It is back to God, that God would come and be his refuge right now. The next thing he does is go on to pray for his enemies in verse 13. This is not a very sensitive prayer in today's world. You don't hear people praying like this very often. May my accusers be put to shame, he says. The Psalms have plenty of examples of bold prayers to God. Daring prayers. Prayers that call in God's promises. And prayers like this one, that God would put down the writer's enemies. It's important to see that the psalmist is not talking about acting personally don't believe the psalmist is wrong to pray in this way. Prayer against the enemies here is not an act of personal revenge, but rather than being put to shame because they seek to sin, they cast the false accusation that God has forsaken this man. Remember who the wicked are working for. This is the devil picking a fight with God. Men who follow the ruler of this age, attacking one who is following God. What will happen when God wins? Which he must do, which he will do. Well, that would show that the psalmist hasn't been forsaken. It would prove the wicked wrong. And shame would be one of those results. The psalmist is praying for God's victory. Following this prayer, the psalmist waits on the Lord. I will hope continually, but I will hope continually. The psalmist has placed these matters, this trouble, into God's hands, and the psalmist is content in doing that. That's difficult to do. That's hard. But remember, the psalmist has confidence that he hasn't been forsaken, and that God has been there from the very beginning. So he doesn't need to rely on his own strength to overcome his trouble, just as how it wasn't in his own strength that he became saved in the first place. Oliver Cromwell was supposedly fond of saying, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Which perhaps is echoing Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. If you like the psalmist waiting for the Lord, as they're waiting for the victory, so what does he do in the meantime? The psalmist hopes in God and tells of his righteous acts and deeds of salvation all the day. Literally all the time the psalmist is telling of God's righteous acts. With mighty deeds, he says, mighty deeds of the Lord God, he comes and reminds them of God's righteousness. In verse 16. It's like he's talking about the congregation here. He's coming before the people of God and preaching. Calling people to worship God, telling them about the mighty things that God has done in the past in Scripture. It's what he was probably doing at the beginning. He was assigned to the people. He's carrying on in the face of this opposition while waiting for God to win. The writer goes on in verses 17 and 18 to reaffirm what he said earlier in the psalm. God has taught him from his youth. And the psalmist still proclaims his wondrous deeds today. 
Even to old age and grey hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another, to another generation, your power to all those to come. Hold fast to what God has done in the past, what God is doing today in your lives. Because of those things, you can be sure that God will be with you, even to old age and grey hairs. Though this psalm is an individual lament, and in that it's not unique at all, that's the most common type of psalm, I think, that you'll find in the book. It's full of the psalmist's confidence in God. Whenever something bad happens, the response is to turn to God and praise God. And by the second half of the psalm, it's positively triumphant in tone. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Even verse 20, where the psalmist discusses, talks about calamity and trouble, it's bracketed by praising of God on either side. We come to verse 20. You who have made me see troubles and calamities. This is the second trouble, this reference. Probably to the general troubles and struggles of life. Something that comes to everybody, one way or another. And there's nothing particular here either. So the psalmist could be talking generally. could apply it to opposition based from people, like the psalm primarily discusses, or poverty, lack of material wealth, struggles with mental health or physical health, bereavements. Nowhere in the psalm does it say that these things, these troubles and calamities, are examples of being forsaken by God. God makes these troubles and calamities be seen. As an aside, it's important to know that bad stuff in the Bible and sin aren't the same thing. Sin literally means to stray from the path. That's what the Hebrew word means. It's something God doesn't ever do. God does, however, bring trouble to people for all sorts of reasons. Now, I'm not preaching about why we suffer. That's a big question, a big topic. It deserves its own sermons dedicated to it. But it's worth remembering that we worship a saviour who suffered, not just on the cross, either prior to the cross. Jesus faces opposition in his life. It's the suffering present that's got, just generally in the life of Jesus. Taking up your cross and following Jesus doesn't sound like a promise of an easy ride because it isn't one. What this also means is that those who would say that suffering is a sign of sin or that God has forsaken you are wrong. Indeed, present trials don't mean that God has abandoned us just as we saw earlier. So what happens then after the calamity? Well, God revives the person again. He brings them up from the very depths of the earth to bless them. The way it says, you will bring me up again, it's talking both about things that have happened, but also 
about the writer's confidence that it will happen again. Look, the tense changes. You who have made me see troubles and calamities, you know, in the past, will revive me again now. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. What God brings people back to can vary. Job does receive back material blessings that he lost. But in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, the Apostle Paul says that he's learned the secret of being content, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need through Christ who strengthens him. However God does it, he will comfort you, he does bring you back from whatever the troubles or the trial is. We have confidence because of God's saving work in the past and because we know present trials don't mean that God has abandoned us. Because of those things, we know we will endure to the end. Towards the end of the psalm, the writer continues to praise God. He shouts for joy and sings to God. And this is not a mere unfounded hopefulness or a temporary happiness, the psalmist knows what the ultimate end is. He knows that God will overcome the devil in the world, and he knows it's by God's strength that he stands redeemed, and we'll see this in the final two verses. In verse 23, my soul also which you have redeemed. Not only is the psalmist not forsaken, He is, in fact, redeemed by God. Remember, God started this. God's there in the beginning of the psalmist's life. He's begun the work. And that's why God started the work in you. And you know Christ's redemption of you personally. You know that Christ's blood remains shed for you when everything in life is plain sailing and when everything is like a storm all about you. That Christ has covered your sin with his blood doesn't change with the trials you face day to day and year to year. Even to grey hairs, his blood will still cover you. We also see right at the end, Psalmist comes back to his, um, referring to his earlier prayer. When my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. I don't take this as being a later addition. This man here is sure of God. He knows who the winner is going to be, and it's not these enemies. So he can write of this prayer as though it's already been answered. Likewise, the opposition that you see to the gospel from other people will end. God is going to overcome it. To paraphrase Martin Luther, Though none on earth can withstand the devil, he cannot harm you. His doom is sure. A little word will fail him. It's interesting, it's a quick aside I was thinking earlier, that the only vestige of the Western Roman Empire, that of course was the big earthly opposition to the gospel in the New Testament, is the Roman Catholic Church. Ultimately, it passed away. Ultimately, it ended up being used as an instrument to spread the gospel. 
That's what happens ultimately to everything that opposes God. It fails. One day, my five-month-old son will be a bit older. And when he wakes up unexpectedly, and he can't see his mum or dad, he won't burst into tears. Because he'll have learned that just because he can't see us, doesn't mean we've left him all alone. That boy from the church youth group a few years ago, who was often picked up late, never feared his dad wasn't coming. Whatever the reason his dad was late, it didn't matter. In that child's mind, he was certain that his dad would come, no matter what the reason was he was running late. Of course, confidence in, in, early parent, in earthly parents is a very, very, very pale imitation of our confidence in God. Have confidence then that you are never forsaken and will endure to the end. God, whom no power on earth or in heaven can withstand, he has redeemed you. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you for this psalm, for that man who all those years ago wrote about how he could face trials because he knew that you had saved him. And he knew that no matter what the troubles and calamities his life brought up, whatever you made him see there, that he was saved, that he could have confidence in you. And I thank you that those of us here who are Christians, that we know we were saved in the past, that we know it was your work, and that no one, not ourselves or anyone in this world, nor the devil, no one, can change that you saved us through your sovereign will. Amen. Amen.